0: Girls in Work presents Sexism in the City. Behind every statistic is a story, and we're sharing yours, the good, the bad, and the funny, to help drive change for women in the workplace. This is Girls in Work. Find us at girlsinwork.com.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the final episode of our Girls in Work mini-podcast series, Sexism in the City. And what a series this has been. We have learned so much along the way, haven't we, Save? And it's really opened our eyes and hopefully yours too of the challenges that many women continue to experience and face in the workplace today.
2: Yeah, and so if you're only just joining us for episode four, welcome to Sexism in the City. It's a very special mini-series from the Girls in Work Podcast, and like I'm said, we talk all about the sexism and the challenges that women still face in the workplace every day. And we started this whole idea with a quote that said Behind every statistic is a story. And so throughout the series you'll hear we were so grateful to have had So many submissions from women all over the world where they gave us their real experiences and their thoughts and their stories of sexism at work so yeah so i'm safe this is em and we are super grateful to have had alicia with us for this whole series as well who's an employment solicitor who you'll hear her voice in just a second and she's here to give her legal advice and her expertise and her thoughts on the submissions that we receive and also on all of the topics just from a slightly more qualified point mm-hmm. of view than me and em <laughs>
1: <laughs> and this final episode is a bit more of an education piece so alicia will be talking us through the legal structures in place to support women and also the processes that we can work through if any of us were to experience any of the issues that we've discussed across the series as well as just a nice summary of everything that we've learned along the way too. So we hope you enjoy this episode.
3: To briefly outline the legal position, discrimination on the basis of sex, pregnancy or maternity is unlawful under the Equality Act 2010. Harassment on the basis of sex and sexual harassment is also unlawful. Harassment is unwanted behaviour which is offensive or which makes a person feel intimidated or humiliated. If you believe you have been subject of discrimination or harassment you should seek legal advice. If the action happened in the last three months, you may be able to pursue a claim at the Employment Tribunal. Please do get in touch with me at Thrive Law if you'd like any further assistance. It is also worth adding that any legal discussions in this podcast are for reference purpose only, and it's only accurate at the date in which it's discussed. Anything said does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. Specific legal advice about your specific circumstances should always be sought separately before taking or deciding not to take any action. Please contact me at Thrive if you have any questions. So... Over the last three episodes we've been
1: talking through the different experiences that women have had of sexism in the workplace and some of the key themes and discussions that came up from our research and the submissions that we received. So this final episode is all about the next steps that we can take to try and overcome the issues that women continue to
2: face and the process of reporting any of these issues. Yes and I think we mentioned in episode three that we are very grateful to have been able to speak to a number of different organisations that work to fight sexism and bias and discrimination in workplaces and the world on a daily basis so you're going to hear from a number of those throughout this episode. We've got Emma back with us from the Young Women's Trust who you're going to hear from in just a second. Towards the end of the episode we hear from Rosie from Incloris Group who are a wonderful wonderful organisation who work to report on unconscious bias and microaggressions and sexism and discrimination in the workplace and actually turn that into actionable data for employers to make workplaces and cultures a much better and much safer place. But we couldn't do this series without touching on the impact that COVID-19 has had on young women and so we're now just going to hear from Emma from Young Women's Trust who touches on exactly that on the financial impact of COVID-19 as well as a couple of other things.
4: Hi I'm Emma and I'm the Digital Engagement Officer at Young Women's Trust and I work on the digital elements like the social media and our emails to supporters and Young Women's Trust is a feminist organisation working to achieve economic justice for young women. We campaign for young women's equality in the workplace and our research looks at what young women's lives are really like. So we recently launched our research centre for young women's economic justice and we train young women who lead on peer research into economic injustice. So they'll explore the multiple barriers that they face in their own lives and the lives of other young women whose voices are not heard by decision makers. So we combine peer research with statistics and data to build a unique evidence base on young women's lives and call for the change that young women need to actually achieve economic justice. So we've had the opportunity to speak to young women about their lives during the pandemic and throughout lockdown. We found that 1.5 million young women have lost income since the start of the pandemic. And this is because many of the industries that were hit really hard by closures and the restrictions, they were ones which predominantly employ young women. So retail, hospitality, And, you know, often these roles were low paid with insecure contracts, irregular hours, and actually a quarter of young women have been furloughed since the beginning of the pandemic. And, you know, lots of those have have lost future income some of their hours and since March of 2020 69% of young women claiming benefits did so for the first time a significant amount of young women were unable to afford food and other essentials you know period products clothing travel to get to work and actually 35% of young women single parents reported skipping meals to make ends meet and this is you know this is reflected in in this sort of increase in food bank usage um you know parents having to you know, prioritize feeding their children. Two in three young women who are mothers said they had been affected financially. Over half of the young women that we spoke to said they were worried about their finances or their future finances. So the financial impact of the pandemic has been huge for young women. One young woman said to us, there was no childcare, I was the teacher, I was the mother, I was the maid, I was the carer, I was everyone, everything. And I think that really sums up how so many young women have felt during the pandemic, that they have had to take on all the responsibilities and that, you know, they haven't been acknowledged for that so important for us at the young women's trust to have this specific research that focuses on young women as a as a group because when they're considered all women those experiences are going to drastically differ and the same when it's all young people then you're looking at both men and women there and you're not able to see the specific experiences of young women and i think as well you know it's important that we're aware of the intersectional nature of discrimination you know if you're a black young woman you have you could potentially be discriminated on because of your race or because of your gender we actually found that 41% of black young women said they've been discriminated against when in or looking for work because of their ethnicity <laughs>
1: Those numbers were shocking, and just a realization of like, we we knew COVID was impacting a lot of people, but when you hear more in depth stuff like that, it's a bit like, whoa, okay, takes you back a bit.
3: Yeah, and it's really interesting because something we say a lot at Thrive. When we talk about the pandemic, it's what we say, because there was a moment where everyone was kind of really like unified and was like, oh, we're all in this together. But actually, increasingly, it's a little bit more like we're all in the same storm, but we're not quite in the same boat. I think some people have definitely had it so much worse than others. And this is a really good example of actually certain sectors of society. And sadly, those sectors do seem to be women who have really taken the hit as a result of a pandemic that really should have equally affected everybody. (laughs) You'd have thought the pandemic would be a great leveller, but it doesn't appear to have worked out that way.
2: Yeah, I know. And I think just kind of just going back a little bit to what we talked about in episode three, like Mm -hmm. how disproportionate the levels of furlough were between men and women as well. Like so many more women were furloughed across multiple Mm -hmm. age groups. And you just think there's something there, isn't there? There's like some kind of systematic thing there that means all of these women have been furloughed compared to how many men were furloughed.
3: It's really interesting though because there's the other aspect of how because there was a period of time where you could be furloughed because of childcare obligations so actually how many of those women were furloughed because the schools were closed and they had had them yeah. to look after and I did actually at the time think that was really it's actually it was actually quite an inclusive move from the government because it was almost like they didn't expect you to try and do both. There were all these limits on when you could use furlough and then they kind of had the decency to recognise that actually It's probably not the easiest thing in the world to have children at home and work at the same time So they did kind of edit so furlough fit fit within that So but again, it just shows the kind of automatic that the women are going to be the ones taking the time off and not the men
2: and how many of those took the furlough because they thought it was going to be a couple of weeks like yeah mm-hmm. I'll look after the children and homeschool them for a couple of weeks but actually then how many of those roles have then gone on to become redundant yeah. because businesses mm-hmm. haven't been able to keep anybody on
3: Yeah, and as, and as the furlough mm-hmm. scheme ends in September it's going to be really interesting to see kind of how, how that resolves itself in terms of how many people have just been kind of propped up by the furlough scheme and the, the employers are going to realise that it's not tenable for them to all come yeah. back and if majority of those are women then you've got the same problem haven't you it's suddenly even more women unemployed
2: yeah no definitely and we have been well and truly spoiled by the amazing team at young women's trust because you heard emma mention at the beginning of that clip all about the young women's research center and their peer researchers and we are very lucky that we have a couple of clips from some of those researchers for you too so you're about to hear from Medea, louise and kirsty Medea explains to us what peer research is and all of the brilliant things she's learned about being a peer researcher with the young women's trust louise shares the things that stood out to her what she related to and all around the increase in caring responsibilities for young women and Kirsty shares her experience about how important it is to have the research and the researchers coming directly from the people in the communities that are impacted and how we can do more to close some of those data gaps. Madeha, Louise and Kirsty all explain exactly why peer research is important to them too.
5: Peer research is important because it means believing in the power of equipping people that have lived experience with necessary tools to be the ones to carry out research on their community group. It gets rid of the power dynamic and allows a space for more open and honest relationships to be formed. I feel this is essential to gain authentic research data and it paves the way for better campaigning and real social change. The research carried out by Young Women's Trust empowers young women to contribute their experiences and be heard. I feel they have strengthened their focus to research and analyse data from a wider demographic of young women with intersectional identities. It's not always easy to speak up or share personal experiences. So speaking to another young woman about your experiences, it becomes less intimidating and feels more like a real conversation. How the peer research project that I've been a part of has been really important to me personally is that it gave me a chance to make meaningful connections and contribute a positive difference to people's lives who need it most. The Young Women's Trust created fun, flexible and paid opportunities which has been helpful for me because I've been out of work or have been unable to commit to full-time work. My experience of being a peer researcher with the Young Women's Trust is that I've learned more about research processes and what peer research really is. I gained the training, the experience interviewing young women, how research data is analysed and a chance to present findings to other organisations. This experience gave me the opportunity to improve my communication and organisational skills as well as the chance to be a part of a team with similar interests and passions for social change. It was really interesting for me to learn about my value as a peer researcher with lived experience and how peer research as a method helped us to really understand what young women are going through.
6: Hi, I'm Louise and I work with the Young Women's Trust as a research associate. Our research is important as it it created an opportunity for us to present our real experiences to the people in power, the people who are meant to represent us. They can hear the voices behind the statistics. Something that stood out to me was learning about how the pandemic increased many young women's unpaid care and responsibilities. It was important to hear about how they navigated this. Many of the young women didn't really consider these new caring responsibilities as providing care. They saw it more as their duty as a member of the family. I relate to this personally and it did make me feel less isolated and I realised just how resilient we are but I would like our research to encourage these young women to advocate for themselves and their needs. They should know what extra support is available and how to access it. I also think it was really valuable that our research engaged with young women up to 30 years old. From my conversations, a lot of young women appreciated this opportunity to share their experiences and said that it was important because they felt like they just aged out of a lot of services and government help. I do agree and I feel like the pandemic has definitely halted or changed a lot of people's life plans and circumstances and when you do age out support it can feel quite demotivating and isolating. So our research also created a
7: valuable space for young women to share in a way that they might not usually be able to. Hi, I'm Kirsty, I'm one of the Research Centre Associate at the Young Women Trust. So I first got involved with the Young Women Trust as a peer researcher. I think peer research is really important because compared to traditional research, where the researcher sits outside of the community that they're researching about. Peer researcher are researchers who are from the community. That drastically changes the power dynamics when we interview people. Our research is really important because young women are often facing issues at work which are specific to their gender, but also specific to other identities that they hold, such as race, class, Health conditions, disability, sexuality, and faith. So there's a lot of area and topics that we can research about, but with an approach of intersectionality in order to really have that nuanced understanding of what it is like to live and work as a young woman in the UK right now. And our research is particularly important because we are seeing how has COVID nineteen impacted the lives of young women. So how has that contributed to the changes in our lifestyle, in income, in our health. And that information is really important to have in order to campaign for more support from the government and support from individuals or even corporates. I really enjoy doing peer research. I am someone who's Chinese, who have health conditions and I'm also dyslexic, which means I face a lot of barriers in education and gaining employment and those barriers used to make me feel really isolated but by being a peer researcher I was able to connect with other young women like myself and I think it's really important to have peer research to elevate the voices of young women often I find a lot of policy work a lot of research has kind of a heavy quantitative like a there's a lot of statistics there's a lot of graphs and I don't really get to hear the story of what's really happening on the ground. I think researchers who doesn't belong to the community they're researching about ought to think about beyond getting the data, interviewing people to get the findings that they can produce they must think beyond that but but also think about the impact they can have and influence because of the connections they made with the community it's not enough to just say these are my findings we must think about how we can share that power as a peer researcher i'm already sharing the information and support that i know and that's a really good way of building community and feeling more secured in yourself in the research we've done for missing data on young women really highlighted the issue of if we don't have even a snapshot of what young women are experiencing across certain demographics. How are service providers, how are we, how does charities, government, are supposed to even address what is going on without that snapshot? That's a huge concern for me. And I think, again, peer researchers are people who are from the communities that doesn't have the data that is representing them. And if young women from these communities are happy to share with us about their lives, it would really help policymakers and service providers to just design and review their services to be more inclusive so it can achieve the aims that we want it to to have. When I was listening back to some of those clips, I found them really
2: powerful. And it's been amazing to hear from these young women who are so involved with this ridiculously important research. And I think even with us as young women ourselves, as we've been doing the research and we've been doing our own research you kind of get so desensitized to it and particularly if you combine that with your own experiences like we've mentioned a number of times a lot of things you you just brush off or you work through or you'll navigate your way around because that's you're just so used to it and i think just hearing from these young women who like we say are so involved with this and are experiencing the, these things themselves as well it's just it's such a reminder of how big of an impact we can have and also how much work there is to do so we just want to say thank you again to Mediha, Louise and Kirsty for giving up some of their time to chat with us and to the Young Women's Trust again who do truly amazing work if you'd like to check them out we'll add their social handles in the show notes of this episode or you can go to youngwomenstrust.org where you can find out more about them the wonderful services they offer and the ways that you can get involved with the movement to.
1: Cool so to start with Alicia do you want to talk us through the legal framework in place for protection against discrimination?
3: Yeah sure so effectively the Equality Act 2010 protects people from discrimination on the basis of protected characteristics and one protected characteristic is sex and so then how it works is that people so employees but also workers, um, applicants for jobs are then protected from being discriminated on the basis of those protected characteristics. If you aren't being discriminated against because of a protected characteristic, e.g. you're just being bullied because they don't like you, that's not discrimination, it's bullying and a slightly different issue. But obviously when we're talking about the discrimination framework and what we've been talking about in these podcasts, a lot of it's going to fall within sex discrimination. So then actual discrimination slots into quite a different, a number of different functions and a number of different claims. There is direct discrimination. So direct discrimination is when you can prove that an employer has treated you less favorably because of, in this case, your set. Um, And in order to have that as a claim, you have to have what's called a comparator or a hypothetical comparator. So you have to either prove that an actual man was treated differently in this scenario, or that hypothetically, a man would have been treated differently in that scenario. So an example there is literally like if you promote a man over a woman, even though they're both equally qualified, or in some situations, if the woman is more qualified, that would then you would then be able to evidence that that's because of your sex more more than likely. Indirect is slightly more complicated in that it's where there's a practice, a policy or a rule, which applies to everyone in the same way, but puts people at a particular disadvantage. So in this case, because of their sex, that increasingly is most commonly associated with kind of requirements to work certain hours. If the reason a woman can't work those hours is because of childcare, you may be able to say that it's indirect discrimination because if you, even if you're saying absolutely everyone can't finish till 5 p.m., if a woman, because of her childcare responsibilities, that obviously puts her at a disadvantage because she can't do that, you could claim indirect discrimination there. Third one is harassment. Now there's two different types of harassment just to complicate it even more. So there's harassment because of sex. So if comments are being made because of your sex, and it violates your dignity or creates a hostile environment that is harassment because of sex so anything that is said about you because you are a woman then there is sexual harassment now sexual harassment is unwanted behavior of a sexual nature and it violates someone's dignity and it does that whether it was intended to or not and again creates that hostile environment now what's kind of key is that quite often if you you're being sexually harassed there will also be harassment because of sex because the reason you will be being sexually harassed will probably be because cause you're a woman at least in the context we're talking about so you actually will have potentially more than one claim and then there's victimization so victimization is kind of an extra thing that i think people always need to keep in mind especially when we have this conversation around the reluctance to report instances of all the different types of discrimination we've just highlighted so victimization is that if you raise a concern or support someone else's concerns about there being a breach of the equality act so for example if a friend of yours claims that she was sexually harassed you were there and you're then a witness at her grievance meeting or something like that, you can't be subject to a detriment because of that. And if you are, let's say if they then, there's suddenly all these performance issues that there's never been before and they are very coincidental in the kind of, or they come from the person who was the complaint was against, that's a claim of victimization. And again, you can probably raise those claims in the tribunal. Now this then takes us into a little bit about the tribunal process. It kind of naturally flows from this conversation because it's all very well and good saying, these are all the claims but what does that mean so you can bring a claim to the tribunal whether you remain employed or not so you can bring them on an isolated incident things like sexual harassment harassment because of sex whatever it may be you can still bring claims if you are employed and obviously you're then protected as through victimization as we've said the most important thing to remember is that you have to bring claims to ACAS, which is an early conciliation board within three months of that act happening. We would always say the first thing you're going to want to do is raise a grievance, Is going to want to deal with it internally in the company because that's what the tribunal will expect you to have done. But if the grievances, if they're really dragging their heels, an excuse for not going to the tribunal within three months is not that the grievance outcome hadn't happened yet. So if anything happens and you're concerned that you ever might need to escalate it, you need to keep that three month time frame in mind. It's so crucial. But yeah, so absolute kind of whistle stop tour through what that framework looks like. And in the tribunal you can bring claims against your employer, but also in cases of harassment or in cases of discrimination as well, you can also bring it against the individual who conducted the act against you and they can be liable personally too. So if you are awarded anything at the end of the tribunal, it can be also against that person in particular hopefully that will really help help a lot of people kind of understand how it works and everything
2: and what they might need to know because I personally didn't know about the three-month thing so I think that's going to be really really helpful and really useful to a lot Mm. of people so the next Little part of this episode is we asked some of our audience on Instagram if they could ask an employment solicitor anything about sexism um in the workplace, what would they ask? So we have pulled a couple of questions together. It's gonna be like question time for you here, Alicia.
3: Uh, I feel like I'm gonna hide, <laughs> hide under the desk. <laughs>
2: So the first person asked, why is so little done in the context of sexism at work? Interesting.
3: I think what really came through on when we did the first couple of episodes, especially, is that some people actually don't understand what's happening to them is unlawful. And without the kind of consequences for those happening for those little kind of small instances, they can then snowball into bigger problems. Without kind of them being caught early enough, and then suddenly you're in a scenario where a company is facing, you know, a, a really huge accusation that they they then they had so many opportunities to fix beforehand. So I think the first thing is, you know, people actually don't realise what's happening is unlawful or that there's any way to rectify that appropriately. The second problem is probably lack of reporting. We, I mean, we talked a lot about how reluctant people are to report and we're going to talk a lot about that a little bit more today. And the, the third issue is I do think there is still this kind of, especially at the moment with the pandemic, there is just this constant idea of it is no one's top priority to deal with discrimination and harassment in the workplace. There is always going to be something, unless there's like a crisis and they're like, oh my gosh, we have to deal with this now. There is always going to be something more urgent, more important that needs to be dealt with.
2: Yeah, no, I think I agree with that. And I think whenever you have... Obviously, your, your job, your role is, is vastly different. But like in, in other businesses where, say, like it's a finance business, for example, there's never really, well, in my experience, there's never anyone really dedicated to this. Yes, there's HR, but there's never anyone whose job it is to be for anything really like mental health first aider or a first aider or if they are kind of a signpost person to go to, it's always part of their other role that they're expected to do on top of
3: does that make sense yeah absolutely there's never it's never going to be but then it is hr's part of hr's role is to reduce this this is and this is part Mm -hmm. and part of managers roles is to make there be a culture where this is both not acceptable, but also if something goes wrong, that there's something to to talk about and there's someone someone to talk to. So yes, there isn't ever a direct... There are only in very big companies where there be like direct diversity and inclusion people who's responsible for making sure that everything's good on the ground, but also in terms of making sure it's as, as accessible, etc., as it needs to be. But ultimately that doesn't mean it's no one's job. Yeah, no, that makes sense.
2: Okay, so second question what evidence would help in a case
3: so tribunals are fairly if you if you end up in a tribunal you it is fairly document heavy So if you can have as much information as possible saved, so things like if you've got emails, if you've made diaries, contemporaneous diaries at the time or notes, I know we've spoken about it before, but trying to note down things as they happen, that's really going to be helpful. Ultimately, though, it's not actually your responsibility to get the evidence together, really, because there is a obviously anything that you have that the company won't have is really helpful. But the process of disclosure means that both parties, both the employer and the employee, have to disclose everything that they have in their possession, whether it's in their favour or not. So actually, if you know there are emails that exist, and you are like, oh no, I forgot to screenshot it, or even I know I know there's an email about this, but I've never seen it, I've never actually got a copy, I just know it exists, the companies still have to disclose that they can't not disclose it because it doesn't say what they want it to say. So obviously I would always say, save everything you have, um, and save contemporaneous things that the company wouldn't otherwise have. But for the most part, bearing in mind that if you do get to a tribunal level, they can't just not give you things because they don't want to.
2: That's good to know. The third question was on the topic of maternity leave, and so the question said, "How does maternity leave affect career progression, women versus men?" Have you seen anything like that, Alicia? Have you had any cases on this topic?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot of what we were talking about before um, in the last episode, just in terms of naturally because you're out of the workplace for a year, you're going to miss some opportunities that you would otherwise have. What can't happen is that you can't be subject to a detriment because you are either on or seeking to be on maternity leave. If there's a job that becomes available that you would otherwise be suitable for, they still have to give you the opportunity to apply for it. Even if you're on maternity leave, you still have to be contacted whilst you're on maternity leave about changes in the company structure. You are prioritised in redundancy processes, so actually you have to be given first refusal for alternative roles. So it does affect it, but only so far as you're, you're out of the business for a year. So it's going to be whatever, however that impacts you in, in being away. It shouldn't have any wider consequences in terms of you shouldn't be missing opportunities or being kind of you should certainly shouldn't be being dismissed or anything like that because you're on maternity leave so it's a little bit of a a wider like ethical question or philosophical question but from but from a legal structure um there is there is protection there
2: I do wonder what the impact is of obviously a woman taking a year out for example in terms of mentally I guess like is there obviously I can't talk from experience at all I've got no idea what it's like but in terms of I would imagine it probably takes a little bit of time getting back into the swing of things and obviously then you've got added got a, a, a little baby to look after I'd, I just I do wonder if there's any studies been done in terms of what that kind of How wider effects
3: Yeah. It may be worth looking at Pregnant Then Screwed as an organisation. I think I brought them up a few times just because I love them. But if anyone will have done a study on that, it will be them. Okay, I'm going to go have a look.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So, one of the other questions we had from instagram and i this was a bit of a longer one so i'm gonna read this as as it came in so this woman says i choose not to wear a bra at work and at home for a number of personal reasons occasionally my nips will poke through my clothes just as men's do through their shirts i'll still be careful and wear non-see-through clothing and my hair is long enough to put in front of me but they'll be seen from time to time if someone pulls me aside for this what are my rights i don't believe this personal choice should affect my professionalism
3: So I would actually say it depends. So if when she's saying, you know, the same way men do from time to time, actually, if she's then being called up on it, but men aren't, that's direct discrimination. You're being treated yeah. differently than the man would be in that scenario. However, if if it is the case that actually everyone is subject to the same rule and they would equally pull a man, and I don't know if this is necessarily true because you know it doesn't seem to be the way it plays out, but if they would equally pull up a man for exactly the same thing, then actually it's just a dress code rule, and you know, you can dispute whether or not it's appropriate, but as long as it's applied equally, it's not discrimination. Where it would be discrimination is if you're stood next to a man who's taken his shirt off or doing something Mm -hmm. silly or has his or is wearing an equally exposing shirt i think you you would potentially then be you'd be able to point at that person and say as a comparator why are they not having the treatment that I'm now having?
2: Yeah, I think it's one of those things where I think, as everyone's probably talked about at some point, women are sexualized a lot mm. more than men, aren't they? And I can totally visualise what she's meaning. And I feel like in a work shirt, I feel like men probably wouldn't be pulled, not maybe not pulled up on it, but I feel like there wouldn't be any comments around that happening with a man. Yeah,
3: and if that is the case, if actually she's being told off for something that men are otherwise, mm. you know, getting away with so to speak then that is is like unequal and discriminatory treatment and she would be allowed to be saying what's the point of this if they then say oh it's the dress code then that's Indirect discrimination, because you're saying Look, the dress code applies equally to everyone, but it's a detriment to me yeah. because I'm a woman. So yeah. it is. if she is pulled up on it, it's a little bit um, contingent on whether or not they would also pull up a man. But if mm-hmm. she's pulled up on it because she's a woman and they can't prove that they would otherwise pull up a man, certainly worth saying, actually disputing it, especially if there's kind of a disciplinary process, disputing it as potentially discriminatory. So just a couple more questions, Alicia, just to keep putting you on the spot. As a manager, what
1: can you do more of to ensure you're raising awareness in the team and workplace in the right way? I think
3: from a manager's perspective, it's all about culture, trying to kind of foster a culture where people feel like they can properly report instances and, and not being discriminatory yourself. And I don't just mean kind of outwardly doing things that are discriminatory because even by virtue of probably having asked that question you're not minded to but it's about trying to see actually Mm -hmm. is there anything that is indirectly discriminatory have i got any kind of unconscious biases that means that actually i might not be doing things quite right things like this the shirt example is a really good example you probably wouldn't even think about saying actually that's not in the dress code what on earth are you wearing and it's just about having that own level of like accountability of actually am I doing this for the right reasons but mostly as a manager it's going to be about trying to get a culture where people feel like they're in a a position to say things to you if they go wrong and trying to have the right level of accountability for people in their behavior and trying to make sure Mm -hmm. that people are properly you know put through a disciplinary process if they're not doing the right thing and not sweeping things under the rug Mm -hmm. which all of which I I sound fairly obvious, but you'd be amazed by how many people don't seem to be able to do that.
1: Yeah. It's just that like self-awareness, isn't it? And, and checking up on yourself yeah. and making sure you're well-informed and you're creating an environment where people feel that they can speak up because i think if that's one thing that we've we've sort of established from doing this series is that yes a lot of people more people are speaking up but there's still a lot of gaps there um and there's still a lot of work to be done by organizations to create an environment where people feel that they can speak up and, and share their experiences more so we also had a submission from someone who works in an advertising agency and she shared her experience of raising an issue in the workplace but then as a result of that nothing was actually actioned so we'll listen to that audio clip shortly but what do you do if your manager
3: doesn't take the issue seriously well the first thing is if the manager is not dealing with it appropriately escalate it go to your manager's manager go to your manager's hr try and make sure that someone within the company is taking accountability for what's happening if ultimately the entire company is just like a black wall of not responding at all to what you're saying actually that's the kind of scenario where you probably would want to escalate Mm -hmm. it to acas and then on to tribunals because the company has an obligation to deal with these things and just kind of sticking their head in the sand isn't gonna help. And that's kind of why ACAS exists a little bit so ACAS early conciliation came into place a few years ago and effectively the structure is about before you take things through to tribunal and everything has to be dealt with through the legal process ACAS early conciliation exists to as a kind of go-between so an employee would call ACAS and say this is the issue um, and I need it resolving in this way and it's then ACAS's role to contact the company and say this is the issue and this is what they suggest and it's a prompt a because if the company again don't take it seriously and that employee is then in position to escalate it to tribunal but also it's sometimes the person who ACAS contacts may be much more senior or the report of ACAS having been in contact may go much more senior than that employee was ever listened to and it shows that you're taking it seriously so ultimately if, if it's not being kind of taken on board anywhere within the company then, then that's where you would start turning kind of more externally and obviously if that is an issue someone's facing I'm always more than happy to have a chat and talk about it too okay and and this next question
1: this sort of came from how a lot of the discussions were around the fact that we've all probably experienced things but you don't think twice about them because we're just sort of we're used to them and we sort of shrug them off but what if you're in a position where something's happened and you're not sure whether it needs to be reported and you're not entirely comfortable going to hr yet what is the best point of action
3: From my level, I would probably say, actually, if you're even thinking about that, then it probably means that you at least know something's wrong with what happened. In which case you are probably going to be that feeling in the first place means that you might want HR or at least a manager to look into it. So that's probably I mean it's all about what what you think personally if you don't want anyone to do anything about it then fine you don't have to go to hr but it's also worth bearing in mind that hr isn't kind of a legal process if you report something to them and hr say oh actually you know what i completely agree that that's not acceptable we'll deal with it but we've we've got this if you decide yeah that's good enough for me thanks for noting it thanks for your mm. support it's not something that you're, you're not on then on like a big train where you have to constantly report everything and things like that it's not a hugely formal process if you don't want it to be you can say things informally you can deal with things and just as like a oh heads up this wasn't i wasn't really okay with this and then hr it is hr's role to support you but i would say you know if if your question is oh i'm not sure if it needs to be reported the fact that you're not sure goes to show that you at least have some kind of inkling that what's happened isn't okay
1: it probably does okay and then final question is what if you've left it too long to report
3: okay so there's probably there's two answers to this if we're meaning report it in internally there isn't really a too long to report things internally obviously if you're reporting something that happened years ago and the person who did it is gone or whatever it may be it's a the hr response may be a little bit of a slightly more professional version of so what you know what what do you want us to do now it's been this long obviously we can make sure there's better training or whatever it may be but there's not going to be the consequences that you would otherwise perhaps expect if everyone's kind of moved along the bus a little bit now if we're talking about reporting it to tribunal if you leave it too long if you get past three months there is nothing you can do it drops off the edge you you have reached that time limit and claims will be thrown out and i've literally been advising someone on this today because i didn't make the laws i three months is a really short process for things who people who've been through some quite horrendous things but That's why I always stress just bear that three months time limit in in line because if you miss it, you've missed it the window has gone.
2: Yeah, because at first you think three months, like you say, like, oh, if it happens, then three months later it can feel like quite a long time, but actually, like you say, thinking about it, the trauma, if you've got things to process and work through, and then even just building up the courage or the, the emotional
3: energy to actually report this and talk to someone about it, that's not long at all. And three months can absolutely fly by if we put exactly. it in the context of, let's say an employee is, you know, the worst happens, an employee is sexually harassed at work reports it to hr in a big hr company they could very fairly then have that that grievance process take three Mm -hmm. months because they would want to investigate it, figure out what happened, you know, get all your witness statements together. And it could, it would be a little bit excessive, but if it was slightly more complicated than just this happened, let's say there was like a hypothetical past relationship and it takes a long time for them to unpick it. By the time that grievance is over, A, that'll absolutely fly by because you'll be so invested in it. But B, if they take more than three months, actually the initial thing might be out of time. So they could then just, if they then find against you, you're in a really difficult position once again. In some cases, if they find against you and it's really unreasonable maybe restart some of your time but I would always say three months it's three months from the last act of discrimination so if the grievance outcome is another act of discrimination yeah. fine it's from there but if they if it isn't if they're fair and treat everything equally they just find against you mm-hmm. the three months runs from the actual date that the event happened so that's why I'm always like kind of harping on about time limits because they are so crucial
1: so this leads on nicely to the next part of this episode of how to report something to HR. And I think to start with, shall we look at the Instagram poll results? So
2: Yeah, our final Instagram poll. So we asked, how comfortable would you feel reporting anything that's happened to management or to HR? So 10% of women said they would be very comfortable reporting to management or HR. 21% said they'd be somewhat comfortable. 52%, which was the majority of women, said they would not be very comfortable reporting to management or HR. And 16% said it would depend on the situation. Gosh, that just says it all, really, doesn't it? yeah (laughs) so we are going to be hearing from the lovely rosie from Incora's group in just a minute but something that when we first had our first call with her and our intro with her something she said to to us which really stuck with me was that there was a stat something like women are five times more likely to report something to social media than they are to hr which the first time i heard that i was like oh my good god that's so high but then going from
3: my personal experience actually that's so believable to me (laughs) Mm. the other reason why that's actually really dangerous is because actually reporting something on social media say that it's clearly the company that you're talking about or you're saying something happened to you at work actually if it's not been you've not given the company an opportunity to investigate it or the company hasn't found that on balance it definitely happened if you then report it the company finds out you didn't do it you're actually in disciplinary territory because you're damaging the reputation of the company. So I think that's kind of, not only is it shocking because of how the level of comfort people have with putting something out into the world or into strangers before they actually go to the people who are meant to help them, but it's also just the lawyer in me is just thinking, Mm -hmm. actually, you could really, really damage your prospects at work by doing that.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think there's a wider piece on the etiquette of social media, isn't there? And I know I personally have always tried to keep mine very separate. She says doing a podcast all about her career, but you know, small details. (laughs) But I'd never put on my social media exactly where I work, for example. But I do think I would be much more... Comfortable isn't probably the right word, but writing a tweet and being like, okay, this happened to me, this was a bit shitty, or doing an Instagram story where it's chatty and more casual, it almost feels safer. It feels safer and a lot less scary to do that rather than having Mm. to raise this thing big thing with
1: HR it's because we've grown up with social media and that has been an outlet for us to to go out and just get things out of our system so I can understand I can understand that obviously there's there's problems that come as a result of that but it just I don't know I just think that number is yeah. shocking um that people would rather go to social media than to their own company
2: but yeah so I guess the our next question for you Alyssia this really is like question time for you feels mm. like we should have a
3: prize yeah. for at the end or something I'm gonna um, be really mad now if there's no prize just FYI <laughs> <laughs>
2: so of these obviously like we've just said these quite very high and shocking statistics what do you think impacts that feeling of not feeling very comfortable going to hr do you think it's a fear of not being believed a lack of action or or like we've talked about could it be the fear of oh they're going to get penalized for calling this out or reporting something yeah
3: i don't i think there's there is very much an an element to which you don't want to feel like you're causing trouble, which uh, cause as much trouble as you like. Um, but I do think there is that kind of psychological thing of oh, I don't want to bother anyone, mm-hmm. I don't even know if it's worthy of your like attention. When it is. But I so I think that's probably quite a big one. I think the fear of retaliation is probably a really big one. People don't yeah. know about your rights with victimization, but also having a right doesn't necessarily mean people still won't treat you that way. So just because you have a right not to be subject to victimization as a result of raising a claim in the equality act, doesn't mean it won't still happen and what the impact of that could be so I do understand that there is this kind of fear of oh I don't want to be known as the girl who raises complaints or I don't want to be known as the person who accused Johnny of xyz you know and I don't think that's easy to fix because that's just about different people's attitudes towards these Mm. things and if if the, there is this kind of cultural idea that, oh, it's nothing, why are you wasting people's time? Actually, it's understandable that you would then worry about having that reputational issue. So I do, th- I think I think there's a whole bunch of different things that are impacting that. My thought process would always be, actually, you need to believe in yourself and you need to bear in mind that HR's role is to, or your manager's role is to make sure that you are safe in the workplace, make sure you're not being discriminated against. Even if you're not sure, which takes us back a little bit, just make them aware of it and it'll be dealt it should be dealt with appropriately and if it's not then that's a much bigger issue and it may need to be escalated but in the first instance there should be at least someone in the within the business structure or who you can say out oh, this didn't really feel right I don't know if I want you to deal with it formally but can we just talk through this
1: We've spoken a little bit about this already and situations where HR aren't willing to help and what you can do about that. But we're just going to go back to a couple of recordings we had from someone who works in the advertising agency and they went through their experiences i have a client that
8: i've worked on i work at an advertising agency and i work for a client with a chairman that gets sort of quite involved in the day-to-day and sort of joins the calls and things like that and i've worked on that account for sort of three years i think and he just always has been very sort of disrespectful towards women so me and others and before it was only really me that worked on the account but Others joined presenting to the, the client and he basically was just like a, an old sexist man and always calls us love honey sweetheart things like that he's never called me by my name even despite knowing me for three years and then if i'm presenting on the call he'll our ceo joins the call he'll ask my ceo a question about what i'm presenting and he'll respond back and it's almost like he's like my dad or something <laughs> and i'm a child and the man is talking to the other man and won't ask me a direct question about the the proposal i'm going through or anything and we'll just be like asking the CEO what do you think of this or what does that mean and things like that and he'll just respond and it's almost like what is going on <laughs> then others started joining the calls and they started experiencing the same thing up until that point I'd sort of not accepted it but you know just did, never really said anything about it apart from we would joke about it behind the scenes like but I never really said oh I've actually got a problem with that because it might seem that like I'm being difficult or something but then I thought when other people are joining the account and they're experiencing it but then they're not saying anything either I just thought why well nothing's going to change unless I just say something to my boss and like their whole culture uh, their business is really dexist as well they have this group of PAs and secretaries and they just call them the girls and it's just like a classic and then just after that I just got fed up and just basically emailed my CEO saying that I'm just fed up and it's demeaning and you know it's not i've worked in this account for three years and just to be treated like that all the time it's like i don't want to do it and you know what what would be your advice on the matter because i thought he would take care of it i thought that would be the hard part emailing and saying oh actually you know what i'm a bit fed up with it and i it shouldn't have been a surprise i don't think and then he basically responded and just said mm, i don't know what to do i don't really want to to talk to him because I think it would basically just fall on deaf ears and I was like that's not really our problem to worry about if it falls on deaf ears or not just from your perspective as a business owner do you not want to take a stance of we are not okay with this behavior or this attitude towards our employees and he was just saying yeah I don't know what to do and he was like oh yeah he may oh what he said that was just a joke that's just his sense of humor it's he's old you don't need to take it personally i don't think they get when you come to people like that with a problem they don't get because they're like it's not that bad they don't get it because they've not had that personal experience and they don't really have that direct sort of empathy with it so he was like so we'll either take you off the account or we'll resign the account altogether which which is it gonna be (laughs) so i was like i don't really think either of those is a solution taking me off the account you're just gonna put someone else on the account Account, everyone else in the team is female. They're not going to like it either. It's just they're not going to say anything. And resigning the account altogether is a bit drastic. And obviously, that's just going to make me feel guilty, like taking away that income from the business, obviously after coronavirus and things like that as well. He actually said to me, What do you want me to do as well? What do you think I should do? And I was like, Well, I think you should say something. It shouldn't be that difficult to say, Don't talk to my sort of female colleagues in a rude way or disrespectful way. That surely is fair. request and it shouldn't really be controversial so I was like right and then he said anyway I'm going to think about it and think about the right thing to do and then in the meantime I spoke to another colleague who was on the board of directors and he just randomly asked me oh how is that client going and I was like "Oh, oh to be honest I'm really fed up I had a call with them yesterday and he was just being really rude and sexist and he said oh yeah maybe we just stick a bloke on the account then i was like well i thought i worked with people that were like i don't know i was just really shocked at that i just thought because we've never directly spoken about issues like that before i just always assumed that they would be really how i was expecting them to be basically which is don't worry about it i'll sort it yeah i understand then conveniently we had a diversity and inclusion workshop meeting i shared that in ours and then had to report back what our opinions were to the whole group. And I said that one thing that we were discussing was that the board is predominantly white male. So if people have an issue, a diversity and inclusion issue, and they raise it with them, they might not have that direct sort of experience and empathy in order to deal with it in the best way. And it would be good if they maybe had training on it or, you know, training on a country's bias and whatever. And they basically also created this, another management team, which is just under sort of the senior management team. And they called it the operational leadership team and um it sort of just really looked like it was just let's put a load of women on there and people who aren't white and then they went out with a report the week after saying 40 percent of our senior management or something like that are women like just to try and get over the fact that it's a whole, it's an all-male board of directors and then there's one man who's who's asian who only just got promoted just before that call but no one actually knew but i still said predominantly white male and then i said that the operational leadership team i think the The way it was communicated with the business, people thought it might have been a bit of a tick boxing exercise because the week after, then you went out with a diversity report saying, oh, 40% of our leadership team are, are women and things like that. Anyway, that call went, and that was with an independent diversity and inclusion consultant. And then the next day, the CEO put a meeting in the diary for the Diversity and Inclusion Committee to debrief on that workshop. And he was like, oh, how how did everyone think it went? And we went, oh yeah, I think it went really well. we got some good opinions and things like that and good suggestions. And the Diversity and Inclusion Consultant seemed to think it went well too. And then he was like, I think it was very, very disappointing he was like, it was all focused on the leadership team calling us middle-aged white men. We didn't say anything to do with middle-aged. He basically said that the finance director isn't white. That's so offensive. And he was like, it's focused on power. This is a group of people that have had all your backs before as well, giving you promotions and pay rises. You're never going to get far in your career if you have an attitude like that. And then he brought up someone else and oh we promoted this woman to head of client services when someone else had a, a male had a much better cv but we promoted her and things like that but it was just basically a real angry tirade against everyone it was like what the hell has just happened we all thought it went well I and mean, it just the backlash from that workshop where we just said really factual things that just really hit a an nerve. and he was like well it's not my fault it's not my fault no women applied for this position and things like that and then he's just never apologized for it or said anything or addressed it
2: when i was editing this clip together i actually titled it as how not to deal because i don't know what your thoughts are alicia but i think that was just a prime example of literally how not to deal with this type of challenge or issue within your company
3: (laughs) I think you're always gonna have and you are always going to hear horror stories of companies not dealing with things appropriately or dealing with things absolutely shocking just in the worst way and you literally just watch it and you're like what the heck are you doing why did you ever think this was okay happens a lot Um, there are also probably an equal amount of stories where hr do help i've seen a lot of scenarios where women say actually hr really came through for me they were so helpful they really made me feel supported whatever it may be and it's the same with companies there are scenarios where companies really do come through doesn't mean that it's true of all of them there's there is a balance and people can get it really really wrong now something that's really interesting especially on that one story is so, if you bring a claim of discrimination in the tribunal, one of the responses from an employer is what's called the statutory defence. And it can basically be them saying, especially in the cases of harassment or where an individual is the person who is discriminating, is that from the perspective of the company, they did everything they could have done to try and ensure that there was no discrimination in the workplace and to prevent discrimination in the workplace. And yes, this still happened, but it's not our responsibility because we did everything we could do effectively. Now, what I think is important to think about is actually case law has found that it's not good enough to just have training and then not take that on board so like this dni training it's not good enough to just send everyone to dni training but no one actually learn any lessons it's about how useful that training actually was and a um, some recent case law was actually came through about this where there was all these instances of racial racial harassment happening on a workplace floor and defence from the employer was well we send them to racial equalities training it's not our fault that they don't listen or don't understand it and on a study it was clear that actually the training that they were sent to was just not fit for purpose so you can't rely on that the fact that they went on training and also you can't rely on you know they were sent on training five years ago and it should still be fine now so there is this element of actually it's an employer's responsibility to to do everything they can do to make sure that you're not subject to discrimination. And if a manager is there kind of harping on about how equal they are without actually listening to feedback, that's clearly not the kind of structure where that's going to go well. Um, And I think that would be a prime example, wouldn't it, of like the company just not
2: doing... What they were meant to, and in that case, if this woman wanted to take it further, she would then go go through the methods you've already mentioned. Yeah, before.
3: exactly. Uh, the only problem is with some things is that when you're talking more about cultural problems within a company, it's not unless there's a kind of an incident that's happened to you personally, or it affects all women, but it applies to everyone equally. Actually, is it a claim for you as an individual on a basis of discrimination, or is it just that you have an issue with how the company runs culturally, and then you have to you can only deal with it internally because they're trying it just be a little bit like, okay, but, but what? what who cares and they won't be able to do anything about it because actually there potentially isn't an instance of discrimination on you so a lot of those ones where it's more about what the heck is going on with this company culturally is more about having those opportunities to have those dialogues and hoping that you'll listen to so we're
2: now going to hear from rosie from in chorus group and i'll let rosie introduce in chorus and the wonderful work that they do but our interview with rosie was truly truly fascinating and she speaks a lot around a number of the points and topics we've spoken about already on the podcast and just further reinforce exactly what we're up against and I think it's really important we have companies like in group it's a really truly independent third party so she speaks a lot around how important it is that women feel confident and safe to report things and be able to do so anonymously because I don't know about anybody else but in my experience I've done so many anonymous surveys that are anything but anonymous and it's like you get the survey and it says it's anonymous but then the data they collect at first it's like your age bracket your gender which department you work in which office you're working and you and you think in your head well it's not going to take much for them to realise that it's me answering these questions so I think that can be really off-putting so Rosie talks a lot about what they do to ensure that their data is truly truly anonymous which is so important and she also talks about the recurring themes and reports they found during their research including the microaggressions unwanted physical contact there's a really incredible stat that Rosie gives in here that still blows my mind a couple of weeks a couple of weeks on and this likability penalty as well with communication about how you're either too soft or you're too bossy which is something that drives me insane and then finally we chatted with Rosie all about how we can empower
0: women to speak up which we'll chat through a little bit more afterwards. Hi my name is Rosie I'm one of the co-founders and co-CEOs of Encoris Group and Encoris is essentially a tech for good business helping to tackle harassment and discrimination across workplaces and to make workplaces more inclusive and there is a kind of a couple of ways in which we do that work. We have a technology platform that lets employees anonymously flag microaggressions and microaffirmations. And we aggregate that data to try and help a company take a kind of more data-led approach to inclusion. But we also do lots of this work across industries with key partners, um, looking at how we can kind of raise awareness of a lot of the behaviours that individuals are still facing and and ultimately kind of drive change. What we were really looking to do is build up this kind of picture into into the lived experience. And we were particularly, interested there in a lot of the kinds of behaviours that fall through the cracks in the way that companies typically collect this information. So I think what we saw was that if you think of, sadly, you know, harassment as a bit of a spectrum of behaviours, and at one end, you might have really, really severe instances that might be very formally reported or escalated to perhaps HR, a whistleblowing tool, even perhaps down a legal route. But then right down at the other end of the spectrum, you have kind of mechanisms like an employee engagement tool, whereby you're just asked a survey with some questions and you kind of get a stat back, like 70% of people feel like they belong. What we were really interested in is very much all those data points in between. So like what are those day-to-day behaviours, comments, actions? And I think what we found was that there's a huge volume of them. So they are often called kind of microaggressions, these kind of subtle snubs and slights. And we were able to see... A lot of behaviors that probably fall into what we would call kind of everyday sexism, maybe even everyday racism. And I think the challenge there is that people often dismiss them themselves. We kind of minimize those behaviors. and so we we were able to see in in the data that people shared, I think eighty four percent of those, people had experienced them before, you know, this had happened more than once, it was kind of a recurrent problem. But 78% of those were never kind of formally reported. And the number one reason for that was people didn't know if it was serious enough. And I think that so speaks to, to that exact point, you know, people are sharing it with a friend, they're posting it on social media, they're talking about it in safe spaces where they don't, Feel that it's going to be told, oh, you're, you know, you're making a big deal out of nothing, and I think that's something that we really need to address. Is like we know that these everyday behaviours actually have a huge impact, and when we we shut down the conversation around that or force it into a kind of different mechanisms, um, we're we're missing learning about so many experiences that are actually having a massive, uh, you know, impact on, on lots of individuals. We know that in order to help people come forward and speak up about challenges, protecting that anonymity and holding that safe space is really key. And it's why actually, you know, it's so important. We feel that we are this third party that enables someone to do that. And, and actually, we take a lot of time making sure that you can't triangulate through multiple data points and be like, well, that's clearly rosy. When we do our research as in Chorus, there are definitely some recurring themes that that we see. The data we capture, we look at all different protected characteristics. So that's one of the first senses that we're able to look at this through. And what we do typically see is a really strong trend whereby a lot of the incidents are related to gender. So in fintech and and kind of typically across the other industries where we've done it as well, we're looking at about 80 to 85% of our responses will be around gender kind of as a protected characteristic currently. And then when we kind of dig into that, we definitely see a very high instance of essentially behaviours where an individual is made to feel inferior. So there are lots of different ways in which that comes out. It can be being consistently spoken over in meetings. It could be having your ideas not credited. It could be being, you know, somebody making the assumption that if you're the woman in the room, you're always going to go and get the tea. Like, I think there are lots of different ways in which we can quite unconsciously signal to someone that actually we don't hold you in the same level of respect. And that kind of overarching sentiment is something that we we see as a very strong trend. And then underneath it, we're able to unpack quite a wide variety, I guess, of behaviours there. Another very common theme related to that is, I think, kind of relates to communication. So we see a lot of women who feel that there is this kind of double bind, essentially, you know, of your communication style is either too soft or it's too tough or whether whether you're kind of perceived to be kind of bossy if you're more of taking on a leadership role and I think those kind of communication patterns are something else that we see lots of women kind of reporting and mentioning as a as a kind of regular challenge or something that I find very troubling is we do still see a really high instance of unwanted physical contact so typically about 10% of incidents will be about unwanted physical contact and a high percentage of those are happening still in group settings and in the office so there's a definite situation here where lots of you know women are being put in uncomfortable positions of varying levels of severity and that is being probably witnessed by others and not necessarily called out or acted upon that means there are so many bystanders or witnesses when this is happening and it probably means that it's very subtle do you know what i mean it's probably quite insidious it's that person who's a little bit too touchy-feely or but but that that's still making a lot of people feel uncomfortable and we still don't have mechanisms or the behavior change in place where somebody would step back and call that out or somebody would And so that's always something that we are very mindful of when it comes up. And actually, the work that we've done in response to the research findings, a lot of it has really looked at how can we ensure that companies have uh, the kind of policies and processes in place, particularly around that problem of kind of bullying and harassment. That piece around how do we encourage people to speak up about behaviors that are making them feel uncomfortable, but exactly as you say, in those situations where it's difficult to say something like you don't necessarily want to interrupt the meeting, stand up and say, excuse me, you know, this is the fifth time you've spoken over me. I mean, you might, and that's fantastic if you do, but (laughs) a lot of people don't feel in a position to do that. And so one thing, you know, we're really focused on and passionate about it at Inchorus is how do we create tools and mechanisms that enable an individual to kind of safely do that so that you're able to, you know, if you're sat there thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening again, how do we create a space for you to voice that but at the same time you know ensure that gets to the company in a way that's kind of constructive I think we we always say you know microaggressions are kind of anything but micro and impact and it's really interesting actually because there is some research out there that looks at this piece of how it's so easy for people to dismiss them as oh you know it's not a big deal you're being too sensitive oh, I don't think so and so meant it that way. And one of the challenges there is like, and it relates to something called essentially attributional ambiguity. And it's this, this idea that it's almost harder when it's a microaggression, or it's slightly in this kind of, you know, for want of a better word, gray area to say concretely, oh, you know what, that behavior was wrong. And psychologically, there's a real, there's a real problem there, because that plus the, you know, the frequency in which individuals are experiencing those can kind of results essentially in, in a drain of constantly processing, you know, was this me? Am I being too sensitive? And in that respect, there is some research that kind of questions whether these behaviours can almost have a bigger impact over time of the more overt, where it's easier to kind of draw that line and then potentially seek resolution or look to get support. And that's fascinating, Uh, you know, really, really interesting research showing that, yes, there's kind of huge long term impacts of just dismissing these kinds of these kinds of behaviours. And I think there is also additional research that has looked at that link between experiencing microaggressions and kind of mental health. So there, there is definitely a correlation. Well, several studies show that there is this correlation between kind of low self-esteem and kind of, you know, poor mental health as a result. I think the question around what can we do to encourage women to speak up is it's a huge question. And I think there's kind of lots of different layers to this. Ultimately, as an organisation we talk a lot about kind of psychological safety or trust and how can we ensure that people feel, feel that they can share issues and speak up about issues without, you know, kind of repercussions essentially, and that they will be listened to and valued and acted upon. The challenge there is obviously that that's a huge ask and it takes a lot of time for an organization potentially to get to that point. And particularly if an individual is experiencing challenging behaviors, that that becomes kind of doubly difficult. So I think where we're really looking at is what are some of those kind of practical steps that an organisation can take? Or what are some of the kind of safety nets that you can have in place? And I think we've started there with really ensuring that you have clear kind of policies and processes um, around speaking up, around reporting harassment, around enabling someone to come forward, making making sure that they really understand that process and it's well articulated to everyone in the organisation. And you'd be astonished how many organisations I speak to where that information is essentially, like, hidden in the depths of an internet or in the depths of a handbook and you just think nobody's ever going to find that. And so having kind of up-to-date, effective, easily accessible key policies is definitely something that we, we're kind of a firm advocate for. I think the second point is then really around having multiple channels a lot of companies assume that it's okay to say oh you just tell your line manager or you oh you can just tell HR and actually I think what we need to acknowledge is that different individuals are going to want to potentially speak out in different ways and for some people that might need to be anonymous for some people it might be that they want to kind of tell somebody who they really trust for somebody it might be going to HR for somebody it might be their line manager but the more that we can diversify that choice and provide different tools and mechanisms the better I think that that's the main point for us. And as in chorus, that's definitely the heart of what we're trying to do as well is be that mechanism whereby in that moment, somebody who doesn't necessarily want to report it to HR can still safely share that something's happened to them and it it wasn't right, it didn't feel right, and that they want the company to understand where there are kind of patterns and trends.
3: I think during the kind of process of these episodes we've all learned a lot and had a really good opportunity for reflection and thinking That actually should I report this but also could I report this and in particular someone who actually someone actually made a really helpful submission to us a 29 year old PR professional shared her reflection on her discrimination and she concluded it by saying if I had my time again I wish I documented and screenshotted every conversation aggressive altercation and rude email as evidence I wish I was more able to rise above it and not let it affect me i I was better supported by my colleagues who also experienced similar i wish i was braver to call it out and i saw it happen to myself and others and i think i mean the lawyer in me loves the document and screenshot bit at the beginning (laughs) um but i do think the wider kind of her wider tips are really helpful and like really important to kind of bear in mind the regrets that someone may have if they don't deal with it at the time but yeah and I mean I have another few tips that I think we've already talked about but I'll just raise bring run through a couple of them and um, I think the keeping records we've spoke about keep a diary have your times in there have copies of emails screenshot text and text and put them in a folder somewhere just keep evidence of things I mean we've talked about the right to disclosure but if you can prove that they've not disclosed it properly boy are they in trouble so um i think that's really helpful raise with hr or managers you don't have to go straight to the top if you don't want to and it doesn't have to be a formal process straight away if there's someone more senior than you who you feel comfortable just having a chat with start there see what see what the ground feels like see what support you'll think you'll get following internal processes is really important even if it is difficult but you have to exhaust things internally and give a, give the company the opportunity to resolve it before you start escalating externally and the final thing that i've actually seen it's something that i recommend to my clients not a legal recommendation it's not a kind of this is something you must do but it's just something that i see works really well is mm-hmm. setting up your support network if you're going to start raising claims if you're going to go to tribunal even if it's just an grievance process internally have a bunch of people or even just one person, but I would say a couple who know what's going on, set up a WhatsApp group or similar that is dedicated just to talking about that. And if you are struggling, be it personally, or you just want to talk about it, or you want to vent or send a voice note ranting about whatever it is, have somewhere that you can go to that is really clearly for that purpose, because the clients I've had have have really kind of said that helped them a lot.
1: Yeah, I think one of the key things that I've taken away from this is that whenever we go through certain experiences, obviously some of the the things that we've spoken about are really sort of sensitive and and can be upsetting and I think sometimes you can feel quite alone but what I've sort of learned from this is that there is a support out there so hopefully this this podcast series can be a a reminder that there are places you can turn to and obviously we've learned a lot from you Alicia of processes and and who to contact if you need to but yeah
2: I think that's one of my biggest takeaways is that there is there is support just one thing just going back on what Alicia just said about like raising it with either HR Mm. or managers I think it's important to find that person you can raise it to because one thing we chatted with Rosie about actually was sometimes you go on the internet for where you work and say like here's the HR email and you can tell it's a generic inbox and you don't know who's monitoring that inbox you don't know how many people are monitoring that inbox and so actually that can be really off-putting yeah. if you say like oh I want to raise this but you're just going to send yeah. it into this void of like goodness knows how many people who might be able to read that email so yeah if you don't feel comfortable doing that which I can imagine a <laughs> few people aren't obviously try and find that one contact you might feel comfortable or like as you said go Mm-hmm. through your manager. Or, or even if it's not your manager, if it's a different manager in the business, he might have a close relationship with anybody like that of a kind of a guest in a more senior position who might be able to kind of navigate that ship for you. is really important.
3: And then, quite often, if they, that manager is a good manager or is a nice person, they can then be part of that support network that you're going to set up and say, yes. actually, you know what? If this is getting too much for me, I just I might just need to like drop in and talk to you about this. And I think that's always going to be really like just try and find those people who, if things get rough or if you you don't feel like they're dealing with it properly you've just got someone to turn to
1: yeah absolutely and I think just to reiterate that having a strong support network is so important so have a think about who is in yours and as always the girls in work community is here to support you as well and I think that is a great way to round up the series what do you think
2: Soph I think that's a wrap I think we've done it (laughs) we've done it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh well thank you so much alicia it has been absolutely invaluable having mm. you with us and we said before even if it's just me and em this there, we, we've two of us have learned a lot from you no kidding a lot of people will have learned so much from your contributions so thank you Mm -hmm. so much
1: thank you alicia so that is it we've reached the end of our girls in work mini podcast series sexism in the city and we know that some of the stories and experiences we've discussed haven't been easy to hear but hopefully this has provided you with an insight into the challenges women are still sadly facing and the changes that need to be made to overcome these so that we can make our workplaces a better more comfortable and safer place for everyone and if you have experienced any of the issues we've discussed we hope this has provided you with some comfort that you're not alone and we hope that you feel that you could speak up in the right way and understand the support and guidance in place to help you
2: and thank you so much to every single person who sent in a submission or answered our poll questions we could not have done this series without you and so thank you for being so open mm-hmm. and trusting us with your stories we do of course want to say another huge thank you to alisic collinson from thrive law the young woman trust and in chorus group for their contributions and finally we'd just like to ask that if you you have related to this series in any way and you'd like to help us drive some small changes and um, we'd like to ask that you share this podcast with your friends family colleagues basically anyone who will listen we need everyone to kind of know to realize and to be aware that there are changes still to be made and work to be done if we want to get those changes made and that work done. And obviously, don't forget to hit subscribe now to make sure you never miss an episode of the Girls in Work podcast. And we'll be back with season four very soon, and it's going to be one hell of a series. So we'll see you then. This is Girls in Work. Find us at girlsinwork.com.